Hey, it's Jim Paff again, and this is the Against Nice podcast, where we believe that nice people are evil because they want to run your lives. We promote culture and government that values voluntary decisions left up to you. This is a way to promote justice and kindness that thinks about the needs of others before ourselves. Go to our website, politicsisntnice.com, and join our email list. The button's right there at the top right, politicsisntnice.com. Hey, it's Jim Paff. This is the Against Nice podcast again, and going to be talking to a really good friend of mine. I got to know him when I was working in Washington, D.C. for about eight years. Colonel Alan West, former Florida congressman, running for uh, chairman of the Texas Republican Party, where he lives now. Well, everyone, welcome uh, again to the podcast. Uh, we're very, very grateful to welcome uh, friend and American patriot, uh, Colonel Alan West, former Congressman Alan West, uh, one of the real clear voices here in this country for what we need to do, where we need to go. Uh, I just don't know anyone as clear in his understanding of what America means and where we need to go as Alan West. So, Alan, thanks for coming to the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Well, Jim, thank you so much. And uh, you're a dear close friend. We go back some some ways, some years, and uh, it's an honor that you would have me on your podcast. And I feel the same honor. Used to be leaving that Capitol late at night, you as a congressman, me as a chief of staff, uh, after a long time of really battling stupid stuff. Uh, it just yeah. amazes me, Alan, and I'm just curious your thoughts. I mean, in this time in the country where so much is at risk, our freedoms are at risk, uh, mm -hmm. people are really not clear who we are as a country sometimes, much less what they need to do. What would you say was your biggest learning experience, uh, the time you spent in Congress and what you saw there? Well, I will tell you what an incredible honor for someone to spend 22 years active duty service in the United States uh, military, protecting the very institutions of this constitutional republic, and then get the opportunity to serve in one of those institutions in the halls of Congress. So it was like an American dream for me. And there were those mornings when you get up early and you go for that run and you run up there past the Capitol in that early uh, morning light and it's peaceful and it's quiet and you just understand how special it is. But the thing that really got me was the fact that there are people up there that know that they're lying to you and they know that you know that they're lying to you, but they still continue to lie to you. And that really hurt me to the core because I lived a life, and, and my dad served in the, in the Army in World War II, my older brother in Vietnam uh, as a Marine, my nephew is serving right now, my father-in-law served two tour, combat tours of duty in Vietnam. We all took that same oath. But it is incredible to me that people would take the oath to our Constitution, but then do everything possible to undermine that very essence of who we are, that rule of law that binds us together putting party or ideological agenda above the Constitution. And I think right now, we're seeing a clear indication of that in America. And thank God, I believe American people are awakening to it. You know, I, I have to tell you, I, it bothers me so much. When I look at what Republican leadership does in Washington, D.C., I think 
for the most part, you know, they're not necessarily evil to the core, but for the most part, they've totally forgotten what the American people are really looking for. They have seemingly no understanding that if they just stand firm and fight, by the way, like mm -hmm. Republicans did in a unified manner, uh, opposing Obamacare, which was a massive power grab. And, and yeah. they were rewarded in the next election by uh, getting Congress. They, they seem to forget how critical it is and, and how much the American people are cheering them on, by the way, to do the right thing. Well, sometimes uh, I believe people feel that the Republican Party, as you talked about in the House or the Senate, they do better as a party in the minority and not so much as a party in the majority because they are, you know, very willing, like you said, when they were not in the majority during the time of Obamacare, when Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid were running in the Senate to come together and, and stand unified. But once the American people said, okay, here's the House, here's the Senate, here's the White House, it was like they almost forgot all of those principles and values that they said they stood up for and they believed in. So it is amazing to me that they, they tend to be a certain way in the minority, but then in the majority, they find it very difficult to govern using those exact same principles and values that they said they uh, embraced. So what we have to come to face and understand in America is that it's just coming down to this. What is the relationship between the individual and the institution of government? And this has little to nothing to do with, with party. I mean, the, the fact that people can embrace progressivism, statism, whatever you want to call it, is all about whether or not you believe that the institution of government is supreme over the individual, their rights, their freedoms, their liberties, and their sovereignty. And look at what is happening right now. I mean, you have some Republican governors that are doing the right things and opening up their states, and they're not going to uh, be a part of the fear, the panic, the paranoia, and hysteria like Governor Kemp uh, over in Georgia. But then you also have Governor Ducey out in Arizona that is talking about extending this illegal martial law. So you have individuals that may say they're this, but then in Colorado, you see where Jared Polis, I mean, he started to pull back away from some of these restrictions. And yeah, we know that he's a very left Democrat, but the people, he heard the will of the people, but yet you have Gavin Newsom, you have Gretchen Whitmer, you have Phil Murphy, uh, you have Jay Inslee up in Washington that are really seeing themselves as the institution of government and squashing those individual rights and freedoms. So I think this is becoming an ideological uh, question, an ideological battlefield. And we have got to get back to understanding that it's all about the individual. That's what this republic was formed on believing. You know, I think of Gretchen Whitmer, for example. I wonder, and this kind of gets at the root of where we are as a country right now, too. You see the backlash. You see the the people who are uh, you know, demonstrating at the state capitol in Michigan. But I wonder if how much of a backlash is going to happen with someone who, of all these governors, sounds the most authoritarian. You know, when people were... Um, uh, demonstrating, then she threatens to go further with the lockdown as to oppose the demonstrators as to make, instead of making any scientific or rational decision about what we need to do. If there's not a major backlash to that, then that may say something about where we are as a country and what might be next. I get really concerned about what's next. 
Well, that's why you, your podcast, other people out there on conservative talk radio that are talking about this, that are getting people to stay engaged and not allowing that drive-by soundbite mentality to take over because that's what people are hoping for is that eh, they'll forget, they won't remember, and we'll just move on to the next time we can, uh, you know, be able to use a crisis uh, to advance, you know, our own ideological agenda. Like Rahm Emanuel said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm -hmm. And on April the 2nd, you had James Clyburn, uh, the Democrat uh, congressman from South Carolina, saying that this pandemic gives Democrats a tremendous opportunity to restructure things to fit our vision. We've got to keep reminding people what that vision is. We have to keep reminding people that here are people that told you using fear, panic, and paranoia that you couldn't go out of your house. You couldn't go to the beach. You couldn't go uh, to a park and play t-ball with your kid. You couldn't paddleboard in the ocean. I mean, you could not open and, and run your own business and, and mitigate the risk upon yourself. So it is important that we keep these things out there so that there is a backlash against this authoritarianism, this uh, backlash against this belief that some people, these elected officials, believe that they're feudal lords and that we're serfs. Uh, I don't know if you saw recently, there was an article in Le Monde, which is the big newspaper in France, uh, and a brief editorial signed on by a lot of uh, a few Nobel Prize laureates, but people like Jane Fonda and Barbara Streisand and some of these people. Interesting what they said. She, they urged world leaders to act now to take advantage of this crisis to examine what is essential. And, and adjustments, they say, are not enough. They're pointing to the climate change situation and they're saying, you know, that frankly, they're, they're praising the, where we're at with the economic shutdown and talking about how we need to look at this to bring about radical change, which frankly is, is socialist change. I had a, I had a friend uh, put up on Facebook. He said, uh, thank you for the 60-day uh, trial of uh, full board socialism. I'd like to return it back to you now. You know, yeah. I, with this is if climate change activists and a lot of these uh, liberal activists get what they want, what we're living in now is what's going to be here permanently, which will get far worse over time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the most absurd and insidious things that we have elected officials that are making the decision about who and what are essential. You know, wouldn't it be interesting, Jim, if the American people or, you know, people, citizens could turn and say which elected official is essential or, or not essential, or you, the, you allowed the people to look at these government agencies and say what is essential and not essential. I would have never thought that I would be living in a United States of America where, you know, you had elected officials believe that they were endowed with a right to be able to tell a private sector business that you're going to stay closed and that you would seek to fine and punish and penalize people for opening and running their businesses. That's the danger. And I think that that crosses party lines to get people to understand and question, do these people have this enumerated power? Do they have this authority? Are all of these things happening unconstitutionally? It's funny to me that all of a sudden getting a haircut is illegal, but coming and entering into the United States of America when you're not uh, been invited, and violating our laws, that's not illegal. So a business owner reopening their business is illegal, 
but yet a state or a city that declares itself as a sanctuary city, that's not illegal. So we're having a lot of great philosophical thoughts and discussions, and we just got to keep it going because that's what the other side is hoping. You know, it, it'll peter out. Uh, they won't think about it. And next time we can really get them. You know, I live in the little town of Woodland Park, Colorado. This is what's really absurd and interesting about all this. So lots of small businesses and a few larger footprint businesses. There's a Walmart, a couple large grocery stores. Uh, during the shutdown, all the tiny businesses were entirely shut out. Yeah. Except for a few food places that were doing carry out. But these big box retailers are wide open, taking in the money. They haven't had any problem. In fact, in our city, uh, they, they make up so much of the sales tax that there might not be as much of a shortage in the city government. But all these small businesses are suffering. Yeah. Well, and that's what you're looking at. You know, who gives people the right to make that decision? You know, elected officials. That, that's, that's government picking winners and losers. And it is interesting to me, Jim, that you have people, politicians, that are making decisions about who can and who cannot earn a living and who can get a paycheck, but yet not a single elected official has given up their paycheck during this time period. And their paychecks come from what? It comes from the efforts and the, the work of the taxpayers. So this is how we're getting upside down. You know, I had an interview with a, a young man here locally in North Texas that owns a few of these uh, personal fitness training centers. And he said, you know, Colonel, it's very, it's very perplexing to me that we have a place like a McDonald's or any of these fast food restaurants or even liquor stores that are open. But yet I'm being told that, you know, trying to help people stay healthy, I have to be closed. And so those are the type of things that are really causing people to scratch their heads and say, none of this makes sense. And all of this is being done to, to quote unquote, combat a virus that has a 99.6% recovery rate. That's, that's the story. So none of this really makes sense when you talk about that singular factor. We know what COVID-19 is. We know the target demographics that are most uh, adversely affected. So why are we going out with this ham-handed, ham this uh, uh, carpet bombing approach which is creating collateral damage like you can't believe. We have 2.1 million Texans now that are unemployed. And it's over 30 million Americans that are unemployed. All because government decided that they could decide who is essential and non-essential. This, this is it's absurd. Well, and interestingly, every problem that we're facing right now is related to the shutdown yeah. far more than it's related to the virus. And, and by the way, it's tragic. I mean, we've had tens of thousands of people that have died of this. Of course, when we look at other things people die for, I mean, tens of thousands of people are dying from other things too. That doesn't make this any less concerning, uh, the tragedy of the, these deaths related to COVID. Of course, that's tragic. We have that kind of tragic tragedy and death in so many ways in this country moving forward. But I, I want to ask you, so just to be, balance this out, these politicians are shutting these down. What would what would you say to the question, well, why wouldn't they do something? Because if a lot more people would die, then they're going to look like they were foolish and didn't take any action. What's, what's the argument for or against that? 
Well, the, the argument is very clear. We know that Dr. Deborah Burks, uh, just about three or so weeks ago, came out and said they've been very liberal with classifying uh, coronavirus COVID-19 deaths. So what is really happening out there? I mean, that's one of the bits of and pieces of truth that we don't understand. You know, if, if I'm a drug dealer and I get shot uh, doing a, 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 you know, some gang violence or whatever, and I'm wheeling to the hospital and I have a gunshot wound to the chest, but then all of a sudden, I'm, for whatever reason, I'm tested and people see that I have, you know, the coronavirus uh, in my body and then I die, you know, did I die because of the gunshot wound to the chest or did I die because I was carrying a coronavirus? And what we are finding is that everything is being classified as coronavirus. I mean, that's the truth. Uh, Dr. Burks has said it. Uh, there's been plenty of uh, folks going out there and researching. So we are counting this as people that are dying with something, but not so much because of it. So you have these, you know, existing medical conditions such as hypertension, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and heart disease, uh, and over 65, we know has really done a lot of damage in our senior living facilities. So I would say, instead of doing the carpet bombing, we need people to analyze and study and understand because that's where you make the adjustments. That's where you make the changes. Everybody in the United States of America was willing to say, okay, let's slow things down for a couple of weeks. Let's figure this out. Uh, let's flatten the curve. That was the soundbite. But now we're in day 47, day 48. The governor of Oregon has said she's extending it to July the 6th. Why? And, and here Amazing. in Texas, uh, here in Texas, I believe that we are still less than 1,000, you know, coronavirus related deaths. Let's put it that way. But like I said, we have 2.1 million Texans that are unemployed. Think about the Texans that are struggling to feed their families. Think about the high, the, the increase in rates of suicide, people that are losing their businesses, their livelihoods. So that's what I would say is that without a doubt, you go in to try to combat this thing, but you have to adjust. You have to be prudent. You have to be smart and not cause more harm. I think that's one of the oaths that doctors take is to do no harm. But what we have seen is that politicians have done a lot more harm to the American uh, way of life. And this is not about money. This is about the pursuit of happiness. This is about people that have invested their lives in owning a business and people that are going out there working as part of those businesses and you destroyed those livelihoods. You know, economics is not about money. Now, how we spend money relates to the scarce resources that all of us are faced with having to manage. But that's what economics is, is the management of scarce resources, money or whatever else. So when you're talking about a person not being able to run their business under these circumstances, it's not just the monetary aspect of all that. It's really about so many other things. It's mm -hmm. about their house. It's about their children's future. It's about the future of that family. You know, you have, uh, you're going to have divorces increase here because the tension's going to be there. We already know, I've seen it in my community, I've heard it anecdotally around the country, increases in abuse. Yes. Um, you know, this, this is all in the worst and it's not everybody, but we don't, the, the whole economic question centers around something much bigger than just my business. But when my business is failing, 
then that's, that is causing problems well beyond just my circle. This is what we're doing. And so when you look, you've got a situation in your state, which a lady that I have a tremendous amount of respect for because she's spoken truth to power, this lady that owns a salon and she opened it earlier than she was supposed to. And now she's got a judge berating her, but she's sitting there saying, I have no apology for this. I have a right to have my business open. I have a right to feed my family and you're keeping me from that. This gets to a question, Alan, of essential liberty, in my opinion, basic liberties. What's really happening here is we're taking liberty away from individuals. We're granting power that I can't find in the Constitution, and I don't think is in hardly any state constitution, but we're just kind of letting it happen. There's, there's not the kind of backlash that we need to have. These are, this is fundamental. How can we, what, well, what's really at risk here, Alan, and how can we defend it? Well, Benjamin Franklin already told us what's at risk when he said those who would give up essential liberty for temporary safety will deserve neither liberty nor safety. And, and I know uh, Shelley Luther, as a matter of fact, uh, we just had a Facebook live chat earlier this week, right before uh, she was put into, into a jail. And the interesting thing is that you had that judge, Judge Moy, who tried to, like you said, demean, berate, denigrate her there in his court and call her selfish. And her response was incredible. She said, it's not selfish for me to want to make sure that my children are, are fed. It's not selfish for me to want to take care of my employees. She was talking about her quality of life. And when you think about this unconstitutional grab that we're looking at, first of all, we need to, this gives us a great opportunity, Jim, to go back and talk about civics to go back and talk about enumerated powers, to talk about rights, freedoms, and liberties. Because as you said, I do not know where uh, it all of a sudden became that an executive order, a mandate, a decree, an edict, or any of these other things are supposedly law. Law comes from legislators, and legislators are the direct representatives of the people who are supposed to create the laws, and then the executive branch is supposed to go out there and of course, enforce the laws and the judicial branch is supposed to interpret the law. If we start to go down the path of, you know, a singular individual, a governor, a county judge, a mayor, whatever, is all of a sudden kind of like Judge Roy Bean, you know, judge, jury, and executioner, we're getting away from fundamentally who we are as a constitutional republic. We're getting away from, as you said, the rule of law that we have here enshrined in our U.S. and our state constitutions. As Attorney General Barr said, you know, a, a, a state of emergency, and I would argue anyone about COVID-19 being a true state of emergency, but a state of emergency does not mean a suspension of the Bill of Rights. But there are yeah. some people that actually believe that it does, and they are usurping powers away from people. You know, Shelley Luther gave the consent, gave her consent to say, okay, I will accommodate and I will close my business so that we can try to uh, flatten this curve. But then all of a sudden she realized it was having a negative effect, those second, third, and fourth order tiered effects. And she said, I, I got to open my business back up. You don't have my consent anymore. And in our Declaration of Independence, it talked about government existing with the consent of the government. And so again, I think this is a great opportunity to go back and revisit our fundamental founding documents to understand who we are as a constitutional republic. 
But what does it mean, this kind of civil disobedience? You know, you talk about our government being the consent of the governed, but these judges and elected officials uh, have the power of the sword, which is really the definition of government is the power of the sword. I mean, there's no, you don't have law. You can't have laws. You can't have a government operating without that ultimate threat. Not that it's applicable in every situation, but ultimately that is the threat of government is the power of the sword. But in our country, we turned this whole thing around where every right and everything that is enshrined in, in our legal documents, particularly the constitution and the state constitutions gives the power to the people. How do you bypass this problem uh, that we're facing right now with this, I mean, imperious judge treating this woman with disrespect by the way, she pays his salary. Yes. That's that's a part of it as well too. Not, he doesn't get, have a right to his salary. We consent to pay that salary. So we have a judicial system. So he's there. She's the taxpayer. I remember when I was a kid, you know, you, you probably, you too. I remember when you say, Hey, I'm a taxpayer. And that kind of meant yeah. something. It doesn't yeah. mean anything anymore. These people, it's far beyond just what they're doing right now. They really have had an attitude for decades that the people serve them and not the other way around. Yeah, this is a challenge that we've got to face. It's, it's, it's the, we're, we're going back to an old feudal system. And that's why I always love, you know, John Locke, who is the father of classical liberalism and, you know, his inalienable rights, because he moved us away from this uh, divine rights theory of the king, the queen, the duke, the duchess, you know, the feudal lord ruling over us to this natural rights theory. They said each and every one of us as individuals are endowed with these natural rights from our creator, not from man. Uh, Of course, Locke said it was life, liberty, and property. Thomas Jefferson improved upon that and it was life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I believe that we've got to, without a doubt, get elected officials once again to understand their proper roles, responsibilities, and their lanes within this, uh, this republic in which we live in, down to the, the, the most local of levels, cities, city councils, and uh, school boards even. So what we have to do now is, first of all, we've got to become a better educated and informed electorate here in the United States of America. We have to become even more activated And we have to let people know that you don't lord over us, you don't rule over us, and we have to get them to understand that consent of the governed. And I believe that you're going to see some very interesting elections that are going to come about uh, in this November uh, as long as we continue to have this discussion, we continue to talk about it and keep it in the forefront of people's minds so they just don't, oh, we're back open now, it's it's college football season, it's (laughs) NFL, and we clicked off. And then you allow them once again to slide in under the uh, under the uh, finish line. So well, that's yeah. the important thing we have to do. Yeah, well, uh, this kind of gets into the sort of the theme of my podcast, which I call Against Nice. I make the assertion that nice people are, for the most part, are truly the meanest, most evil people that there are because it's a subjective criteria to determine what's nice. Now, kind people are much different. I always say that uh, parents who don't discipline their children, no one would consider kind and no child being disciplined thinks it's very nice. Yeah. So kindness has others in mind, not the self. And, and it certainly does the things that we consider nice, just, you know, the courtesies and the, the cordiality and the thoughtfulness and all those little things. But it also 
in, includes a firm uh, application and promotion of doing what's right. I mean, if we really had true liberty in this country, even those who would never agree with a massive reduction in government right now, if you argued it with them, would still abundantly benefit from that. And a kind person who firmly opposes this big government approach to things still has that other person's benefit in mind. That's, that's what we're all about here. I think we have to really decide that we're going to get serious, purposeful, and, not, and forceful in the way of uh, having courage to take the opposition that will come. But we have to ramp that, that volume up very quickly, Alan, or I don't know where we're going to go. And I think it's possible we'll see that in these elections, too. I agree with you. I really do. I think that it is imperative that we become more resolute. Uh, and I believe that you see more parents that are including their children and getting their children to understand and you think about it, you look at this generation that we have now, you know, I remember talking to some folks just recently about how as a kid, I was able to go, my dad would take me to Atlanta airport. And we'd walk right into the airport, go right to the gate. We oh, yeah. watch planes take off. We see loved ones off. We have a generation that will never know that liberty. They will never know yeah. that freedom. And now we have a generation that believes that a person can say mommy and daddy's business has to shut down. Mommy yeah. and daddy can't go outside the house. So we have to start thinking, when you talk about being kind, we have to start thinking about what are we going to pass on and for subsequent generations when it comes to freedom and liberty. And I think that you are going to see what we have gone through in this year with this COVID-19 uh, really uh, become a, a prevalent aspect of the November elections. You know, again, we should not have, you know, social media platforms or, or people that are being denigrated and disparaged because they want to have a dissenting voice. You have that constitutional right to petition your government for redress of grievances. But we should not have, you know, elected officials that are telling Americans, go out there and report on your neighbors. Go out there and snitch on them. That's an East German Stasi state yeah, type of tactic. And so we have got to continue to talk about these things and bring it out because history has examples of it. And again, that's why your voice and your program, what you're doing is so important because you know, American people, man, we're forgetting in a heartbeat. Once we get to college football season, we open up the grill and we start going out and cheering and we just get distracted. Uh, but I think that the ease by which some people were able to instill that fear, panic, paranoia driven by the media, They'll come back to this if we yeah, don't awaken. Yeah. By the way, it's going to be tough for you and me staying focused because I, I kind of think our Tennessee volunteers are going to be really good in the future. So I don't want to get distracted. Season. Yeah, they had a good recruiting season, you know, and, and so I'm looking forward to it. But, you know, I am going to stay focused on this because yeah. uh, you cannot allow people to take away our liberty. So maybe there isn't a college football season. I was really upset. When, uh, you know, you come and find March Madness. I love March Madness. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And it was gone. Yeah. And, you know, there are people that love baseball. And baseball right now don't know when they'll come back. NBA, uh, NHL, everything. All of these little things that we have taken for granted. I think people are starting to sit back and say, you know, why is it? What caused us to yeah. go into this, this state of, uh, you know, really being sheeple? Oh, I, I, and I, in my opinion, we should have never gone to the extent that we did, but 
yeah. But before we lose time here, I just want to start to hit on something before I get to what you're going to be doing and what you're, you're doing uh, moving forward. I want to talk about the China virus. Let's go outside of our borders here. Yeah. We have, speaking of liberty, we have a real liberty issue connected to that too. China is a country that is determined to take first place in the world, which by the way, if they had our system of government and if their people were rooted similarly to us in those ideas and principles of liberty, that fine, this is competition. We're two, we would be in, in that scenario, two great countries that are advancing liberty for all mankind. That is not what China is about. They are an authoritarian country Everyone who has any bit of financial freedom there has it only provisionally. It doesn't belong to them. They don't get to control how long they get to have that. If they get out of line, they will lose it immediately at the hands of the government. China is not out for our best interest. They are our competitor. We have connected to them far too closely I mean, just look at the, the manufacturing base. And I'm for, again, I'm for freedom. I'm for international trade. I don't mind bringing manufactured goods in from other countries that we have good relationships with. China is out to eat our lunch. And, and eat our lunch is just a nice way of putting it. What, what are we going to do about this, Al? What's really at threat there, and what are we going to do about it? Well, first and foremost, people need to read the One Belt, One Road strategy of China that gives you their desire to be a global, hegemonic, dominant power. Uh, and I think that first and foremost, we have to have people admit that China is our number one geopolitical foe. Uh, there is no amount of appeasement, compromise, acquiescence, or negotiation that has been tried up to this point that's going to get China to stop being the belligerent, obtuse violator of human rights and dignities that we see. So it is so important that first and foremost, I believe that we have got to gather like-minded nations that have been adversely targeted and affected by China, and especially this uh, Wuhan virus. We got to put the diplomatic pressure on China. We have to put the economic pressure on China. We need to make sure that uh, we have a strong information operation because their propaganda machine is incredible, and we need to undermine that. We need to make sure that we strip away China's uh, most favorite uh, nation trade status, we need to look at, as you just talked about, bringing those very critical supply lines back out of China. This uh, this new wonder drug, I think it's rem remdesivir or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what? Who owns the patent to that? China. And so, you know, it just makes you believe that this was something that they kind of all cooked up. Uh, the, the the intent was there. The level of intent we can we can debate about. But we've got to get that production and manufacturing back here. If there is a time when the American people don't want to hear about cheap Chinese goods and cheap Chinese labor, it's right now. Uh, you think about what has, has happened with our economic standing and our ability to you know, take care of ourselves. Look at our oil industry and what has happened. We've got to hold China accountable. If we don't, if they see there are no consequences, they'll just continue to be as belligerent and obtuse as they are. And this is where, again, you know, I'm not saying it's about going to war, but you have to have a credible military deterrent that can back up your diplomatic, your information, or your economic means by which you bring pressure on a country like China. Yeah, I think uh, our 
we've we've really wasted a lot of time gallivanting about in wars over the last uh, 10, 15, 10, 20 years. And uh, I understand the concern of terrorism, but if, if that's our number one focus, that's always going to be a problem. But you're all right. We have to have a deterrent. We have to be strong as a country. I think we have to be strong economically too. I, to be candid, and, and by the way, it's very encouraging to see recently that the United States and Great Britain are just about to embark upon a serious diplomatic effort to have a free trade agreement between yeah. these two countries. And we can have confidence. That agreement probably won't be all to my liking. There'll be the, this or that little thing in it that favors one or the other, and there's going to be bickering over all that stuff. But I can be confident that once that is set, that it'll be solid and firm, and we can trust uh, even in our disagreements from time to time with England, that that's going to be a great trade agreement. We've never had that with China. We moved forward with most favored nation status under the Clinton administration. It frustrated me greatly when I saw that. You knew what was happening because here's what's interesting. This is how I observe this whole uh, international uh, competition. When we were in the Cold War with Russia, it was mostly a threat of blunt force retaliation or imperialism, you know, against our interests or even against us ultimately, if it came to that. Uh, communism is a belief system. And certainly to a certain degree, they were trying to, to influence that belief system internationally. The Chinese culturally from thousands of years ago are one of the countries <clears throat> where psychological approach to going against enemies is ingrained in the culture. It's not even ingrained in quite the same way in our culture, and we often don't even know how to oppose it. This is very similar to the left-right problems where Saul Alinsky was using psyops, so to speak, to try to uh, you know, threaten and intimidate his political enemies. But even the Chinese are far superior and advanced to that. So they really are involved in our country right now. The real threat to us, it seems, is not just the favors that we're giving them, but the media is willing to comply with their propaganda right now, it seems. That, that's very, very problematic. Yeah, it is incredible to me. Uh, I know that Politico just ran a, a recent headline, but when you have our own media outlets in the United States of America parroting the talking points and the narratives of the communist China, uh, that is a huge concern. Uh, you just go back to think during World War II, if you had a media that was parroting, you know, Nazi propaganda or, you know, the words of, uh, you know, the Imperial Japanese Empire. So, Again, I think, Jim, that this is an incredible awakening moment that people are seeing exactly what is happening in this mainstream liberal progressive media and what they are doing, uh, how they will do anything to undermine the current sitting president, President Trump, because being in power is more important for them than the United States of America. And again, it comes back to what we've been discussing. They'll crush the individual. Uh, we see what just happened with Shelley Luther here. We see what they did to General, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. So mm -hmm. if they would do that to just simple, ordinary Americans, if you think about how Obama unleashed the power of the Internal Revenue Service against, you know, a constitutional conservative grassroots movement, just Ma and Paul Kettle out there saying, you know, I, I've been taxed enough already. So the tyranny is here. Now is incumbent upon us, again, to find our courage, to find our resolve, to find our resiliency, to find our character. 
to make a stand. Do we overcome this problem? Oh, of course we do. We're Americans. We, you know, I think it was Winston Churchill said that you can trust the Americans to uh, kind of find their figure things out after they've tried, exhausted every other, you know, course of action. So we have, like you said earlier, the guy said, I've had my 60 day trial of socialism. I don't like it. Uh, you don't have to send me my money back, but here's your product. Yeah. Well, we got to do that. Okay. So as we, before we close out here, I want to turn to what's going on in your life right now. I know you're running for state party chairman in Texas. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing that? And, and what's, what, what's really at stake here in you doing that? Well, I'm doing it because if you look at the strategy of the left, they go into strong red states and they take over the major urban population centers. You see that in Colorado. They take over Denver, Boulder. They're extending down to Colorado Springs, and they mm -hmm. flip a state. They've done it in Nevada, Arizona. They're doing it, and certainly New Mexico. And you, just last year, you saw what happened in Virginia. So the exact same thing is happening here in Texas. Uh, that's why a very far-left county judge and a, uh, a very far-left judicial activist put Shelley Luther in jail. We know about Austin, the capital. Houston, uh, Harris County, El Paso, San Antonio. So we need to have a strategy that fights back against the progressive socialist left and this incursion that has taken over our major population centers here in Texas. University of Texas is starting to look like University of California and Berkeley. So we have got to have a very aggressive, we have to go on offense, we have to challenge them, and we've got to get into those communities who are conservative in nature but for some odd reason, the Republican Party have not connected with them very well. Well, do you find that to accomplish what you need to accomplish here is going to really require you as a state party chairman, if you're successful getting it, uh, to really take on establishment Republicans? I mean, isn't that kind of really a little bit of our problem? Because I've, I've run political campaigns, done statewide efforts for many, many years, either as a, on a consultant basis or directly in charge. There are two major things that I always find are the biggest problem with campaigns and with state party efforts. The first one is uh, having the willingness to put strong messaging out that distinguishes us uh, from our opponents. But the second thing is this, and this is the most critical one. Every campaign when you look at the inner, the National Republican Senatorial Committee or the National Republican Campaign Committee in the House, they're all about, uh, I just have to raise the money and whoever has the most money wins. I mean, that's really where they think. They have this incestuous relationship with vendors who are always getting the money but not committed to winning because they have no threat of losing the business. But they always forget the most important thing, and that's grassroots politics. Yes. Any campaign of a large scale, congressional to statewide, that I've ever been involved with, advised, or run, I always said, if I'm going to spend uh, you know, a million and a half, $2 million, the first 250000 goes to grassroots development. Yeah. Building out a coalition, building people who are working in regions of the area to recruit grassroots volunteers who will make a firm commitment. Every time I've done that, I've been successful. The biggest success I had was in 2006. We were losing everything as Republicans. Mm -hmm. and I ran the marriage amendment in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And we put a massive grassroots effort. We were outspent six to one. And we won on a very red issue. But that was because of the grassroots effort. And we, you know, we were able to get out in the media. You still got to do that. I'm not saying money's not important. Yeah. How, 
how can I mean, are you, are you going to be able to institute that sort of thing if you become state party chairman? Well, look, you know, we've gotten endorsements from, you know, both sides of that uh, GOP fence, if you want to call it that, because what I'm getting people to understand is you're losing Texas on your watch. And you can play these little selfish games about your own little rice bowl. But the bottom line is this. Do you want to go down in history and have that happen? And when you look at uh, the, the incredible advances that are happening here in Texas, when you look at how it appears that Republicans are not standing up and they're not fighting, I think that folks here in Texas want to have someone that's going to stand up and they're going to fight. And the important thing about leadership, uh, Jim, you know, is you've got to rally people to a cause. You know, it's, it's fine with raising money. But people have to have an energy, they have to have a fervor, and you've got to lead by example. And so I think that that's one thing that people see in me. And everyone knows that, you know, back when I was in Congress, it was the Republicans that redistricted me out of the district that I was honored to represent down in South Florida. So for me, this is not about party. This is about principle. This is about value. It's about this state that is my home now. And it's about the United States of America that I took an oath uh, to support and defend, that constitution. Uh, so just before we were kind of towards the end here, uh, what, what hope then do you, can you personally give, or would you like to give to people who are just concerned about what's going on and quite frankly, pretty frustrated by what they're seeing? Well, you know, I would always go back and, and tell people to read the story of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain at Little Round Top, the second day of the Battle of Gettysburg. You know, he was not a trained soldier. He was a professor of rhetoric from Bowden College. And he was put at the end of the line of the Army of the Potomac, 90,000 Union soldiers. He was told he could not retreat, he could not surrender, or else that entire army would be encircled. And of course, the Confederacy of the Army of Northern Virginia after Lee would march down on Washington. Casualties mounted, ran out of ammunition, and guess what he did? He gave the one word order that had never been given in the Union Army to that day. That was bayonets. So this is a bayonet moment for us that we need to look and say, sure, we may have been taking it on the chin, but we can still rally. And guess what? They rallied, they routed the uh, 20th Alabamians who were coming up Little Round Top. And they didn't just save that day, they didn't just save the Battle of Gettysburg, probably saved this union. And guess what? That simple man, that ordinary man that did an extraordinary thing, ended up being awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor and becoming a two-term governor of Maine. That simple act of courage. And that's what I would say to people. Find your simple act of courage. Shelley Luther found her simple act of courage. Rosa Parks, she found a simple act of courage. You can find it all through our history. And now it's our time for us to step up and do the exact same. You know, uh, speaking of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who's one of the great soldiers of American history, never trained as a soldier, trained himself, was showed so many different instances of courage along the way, not just there, which that was the, the most important one. But he, had, he was so courageous so regularly that when they thought he was dying on the field, uh, Ulysses Grant gave him a field commission of Brigadier General and, uh, you know, deservedly so as an honor. And it was very, very, um, you know, that's that kind of consistent, regular yes. desire to push forward and to show courage. It's what I'm hoping to really highlight with the people that come on this podcast because you know we got to be against nice we got to know that when people are telling you to be a certain way that that's not the way that you're supposed to be it's not up to someone else to tell me what to do I have to through my conscience 
through my understanding of truth and seeking of truth, you, I have to be, stand and make decisions that will work for my family and for me and that have a thought to others so that they can be empowered to do the same thing. It takes a lot of courage to do that, particularly where we're at right now. And I appreciate the courage that you've always shown in so many ways, both in your military career and, and in your political career and cultural career. And I'm just very grateful for that. I'm grateful for your friendship. Absolutely. And I'm very glad that we uh, got to know one another. And I'm, I thank you for coming on with me today, Alan. My pleasure. Go Big Orange. Go Vols. Go Vols. <laughs> <laughs> this is our little inside thing. And everyone else is like, what? Oh, love the Tennessee Volunteers. I love it. But you take care, Alan. Uh, good luck to you on your run for uh, State Party Chairman. And again, thanks for uh, joining me today. Thank you, Jim. All the best. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on the Against Nice podcast. And again, before you leave us, I just want to ask you, connect with us on our email list and our social media. Go to politicsisntnice.com. Click on the join our email list button. We'll get you information related to what we learned here today, but also um, other information that we're finding out along the way. It'll be a great resource for you. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash against nice and our twitter page at against nice go check us out there and we look forward to talking to you getting your feedback finding out more from you thanks